Section 13 of Expository Thoughts on the Gospel of St. John, Volume 1, by J. C. Ryle. Chapter 3, verses 9 to 21, Part 2. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. Notes. John, chapter 3, verses 9 to 21, Part 2. Verse 16. For God so loved the world, etc., our Lord, in this verse, shows Nicodemus another heavenly thing. Nicodemus probably thought, like many Jews, that God's purposes of mercy were entirely confined to his chosen people Israel, and that when Messiah appeared, he would appear only for the special benefit of the Jewish nation. Our Lord here declares to him that God loves all the world without any exception, that the Messiah, the only begotten Son of God, is the Father's gift to the whole family of Adam, and that everyone, whether Jew or Gentile, who believes on him for salvation, may have eternal life. A more startling declaration to the ears of a rigid Pharisee it is impossible to conceive. A more wonderful verse is not to be found in the Bible. That God should love such a wicked world as this and not hate it, that he should love it so as to provide salvation, that in order to provide salvation he should give not an angel or any created being, but such a priceless gift as his only begotten Son, that this great salvation should be freely offered to every one that believeth, all, all this is wonderful indeed. This was indeed a heavenly thing. The words, God loved the world, have received two very different interpretations. The importance of the subject in the present day makes it desirable to state both views fully. Some think, as Hutcheson, Lamb, and Gill, that the world here means God's elect out of every nation, whether Jews or Gentiles, and that the love with which God is said to love them is that eternal love with which the elect were loved before creation began, and by which their calling, justification, preservation, and final salvation are completely secured. This view, though supported by many and great divines, does not appear to me to be our Lord's meaning. For one thing, it seems to me a violent straining of language to confine the word world to the elect. The world is undoubtedly a name sometimes given to the wicked exclusively, but I cannot see that it is a name ever given to the saints. For another thing, to interpret the word world of the elect only is to ignore the distinction which, to my eyes, is plainly drawn in the text between the whole of mankind and those out of mankind who believe. If the world means only the believing portion of mankind, it would have been quite enough to say, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that the world should not perish. But our Lord does not say so. He says, that whosoever believeth, i.e., that whosoever out of the world believeth. Lastly, to confine God's love to the elect is taking a harsh and narrow view of God's character, and fairly lays Christianity open to the modern charges brought against it as cruel and unjust to the ungodly. If God takes no thought for any but his elect, and cares for none beside, how shall God judge the world? I believe in the electing love of God the Father as strongly as any one. I regard the special love with which God loves the sheep whom he has given to Christ from all eternity as a most blessed and comfortable truth, and one most cheering and profitable to believers. I only say that it is not the truth of this text. The true view of the words, God loved the world, I believe to be this. The world means the whole race of mankind, both saints and sinners, without any exception, the word, in my opinion, is so used in John chapter 1, verses 10 and 29, chapter 6, verses 33 and 51, chapter 8, verse 12, Romans chapter 3, verse 19, 
second corinthians chapter five verse nineteen first john chapter two verse two chapter four verse fourteen the love spoken of is that love of pity and compassion with which god regards all his creatures and specially regards mankind it is that same feeling of love which appears in psalm one hundred and forty five verse nine ezekiel chapter thirty three verse eleven john chapter six verse thirty two titus chapter three verse four first john chapter four verse ten second peter chapter three verse nine first timothy chapter two verse four it is a love unquestionably distinct and separate from the special love with which god regards his saints it is a love of pity and not of approbation or complacence but it is not the less a real love it is a love which clears god of injustice in judging the world i am quite familiar with the objections commonly brought against the theory i have just propounded i find no weight in them and am not careful to answer them those who confine god's love exclusively to the elect appear to me to take a narrow and contracted view of god's character and attributes they refuse to god that attribute of compassion with which even an earthly father can regard a profligate son and can offer him pardon even though his compassion is despised and his offers refused i have long come to the conclusion that men may be more systematic in their statements than the bible and may be led into grave error by idolatrous veneration of a system the following quotation from one whom for convenience sake i must call a thorough calvinist i mean bishop devenant will show that the view which i advocate is not new the general love of god toward mankind is so clearly testified in holy scripture and so demonstrated by the manifold effects of god's goodness and mercy extended to every particular man in this world that to doubt thereof were infidelity and to deny it plain blasphemy devenant's answer to horrid page one god hateth nothing which himself created and yet it is most true that he hateth sin in any creature and hateth the creature infected with sin in such manner as hatred may be attributed to god but for all this he so generally loved mankind fallen in adam that he hath given his only begotten son that what sinner soever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life and this everlasting life is so provided for man by god that no decrees of him can bring any man thither without faith and repentance and no decrees of his can keep any man out which repenteth and believeth as for the measure of god's love exhibited in the eternal effect unto man it must not be denied that god poureth out his grace more abundantly on some men than on others and worketh more powerfully and effectually in the hearts of some men than of others and that out of his alone will and pleasure but yet when this more special love is not extended his less special love is not restrained to outward and temporal mercies but reacheth to internal and spiritual blessings even such as will bring men to an eternal blessedness if their voluntary wickedness hinders not davenant's answer to horde page four sixty nine no divine of the reformed church of sound judgment will deny a general intention or appointment concerning the salvation of all men individually by the death of christ on the condition that they should believe for the intention or appointment of god is general and is plainly revealed in holy scripture although the absolute and not to be frustrated intention of god concerning the gift of faith and eternal life to some persons is special and limited to the elect alone so i have maintained and do maintain davenant's opinion on the galactian controversy calvin observes on this text christ brought life because the heavenly father loves the human race and wishes that they should not perish 
again he says christ employed the universal term whosoever both to invite indiscriminately all to partake of life and to cut off every excuse from unbelievers such also is the import of the term world though there is nothing in the world that is worthy of god's favor yet he shows himself to be reconciled to the whole world when he invites all men without exception to the faith of christ the same view of god's love and the world in this text is taken by brentius Bucer, colovius glassius chemnitius musculus bullinger bengal nephanius dyke scott henry and manton the little word so in this verse has called forth many remarks on account of its depth of meaning it doubtless signifies so greatly so much so dearly bishop sanderson quoted by ford observes how much that so containeth no tongue or wit of man can reach nothing expresses it better to the life than the work itself doth that he gave his only begotten son the gift of christ be it here noted is the result of god's love to the world and not the cause to say that god loves us because christ died for us is wretched theology indeed but to say that christ came into the world in consequence of the love of god is a scriptural truth the expression he gave is a remarkable one christ is god the father's gift to a lost and sinful world he was given generally to be the saviour the redeemer the friend of sinners to make an atonement sufficient for all and to provide a redemption large enough for all to effect this the father freely gave him up to be despised rejected mocked crucified and counted guilty and accursed for our sakes it is written that he was delivered for our offences and that god spared him not but delivered him up for us all romans chapter four verse twenty five chapter eight verse thirty two christ is the gift of god spoken of to the samaritan woman john chapter four verse ten and the unspeakable gift spoken of by st paul second corinthians chapter nine verse fifteen he himself says to the wicked jews my father giveth you the true bread from heaven john chapter six verse thirty two this last text be it noted was one with which erskine silenced the general assembly in scotland when he was accused of offering christ too freely to sinners it should be observed that our lord calls himself the only begotten son of god in this verse in the verse but one before this he called himself the son of man both the names were used in order to impress upon the mind of nicodemus the two natures of messiah he was not only the son of man but the son of god but it is striking to remark that precisely the same words are used in both places about faith in christ if we would be saved we must believe in him both as the son of man and the son of god that whosoever believeth etc life these words are exactly the same as those in the preceding verse why our translators should have rendered the same greek word by everlasting in one place and eternal in the other it is hard to say in matthew chapter twenty five verse forty six they did just the same the repetition of this glorious saying whosoever believeth is very instructive for one thing it serves to show that mighty and broad as is the love of god it will prove useless to every one who does not believe in christ god loves all the world but god will save none in the world who refuse to believe in his only begotten son for another thing it shows us the great point to which every christian should direct his attention he must see to it that he believes on christ it is mere waste of time to be constantly asking ourselves whether god loves us and whether christ died for us and it argues gross ignorance of scripture to trouble ourselves with such questions 
the Bible never tells men to look at these questions, but commands them to believe. Salvation, it always teaches, does not turn on the point, Did Christ die for me? But on the point, Do I believe on Christ? If men do not have eternal life, it is never because God did not love them, or because Christ was not given for them, but because they do not believe on Christ. In leaving this verse, I may remark that the idea maintained by Erasmus, Olshausen, Westine, Rosenmuller, and others, that it does not contain our Lord's words, and that from this verse down to the twenty-first we have St. John's comments or observations, appears to me utterly destitute of foundation and unsupported by a single argument worth noticing. That our Lord would not have used the third person in speaking of himself is no argument. We find him frequently speaking of himself in the third person. See, for instance, John chapter 5, verses 19 and 29. There is literally nothing to be gained by adopting the theory, while it contradicts the common belief of nearly all believers in every age of the world. Flacius observes that this verse and the two preceding ones comprise all the causes of justification. 1. The remote and efficient cause, God's love. 2. The approximate efficient cause, the gift of God's Son. 3. The material cause, Christ's exaltation on the cross. 4. The instrumental cause, faith. 5. The final cause, eternal life. Verse 17. God sent not, condemn, world. In this verse our Lord shows Nicodemus another heavenly thing. He shows him the main object of Messiah coming into the world. It was not to judge men, but to die for them. Not to condemn, but to save. I have a strong impression that when our Lord spoke these words, he had in view the prophecy of David about Messiah bruising the nations with a rod of iron, and Daniel's prophecy about the judgment, where he speaks of the thrones being cast down, and the Ancient of Days judging the world. Psalm 2, verses 6-9, Daniel chapter 7, verses 9-22. to I think that Nicodemus, like most Jews, was filled with the expectation that when Messiah came, he would come with power and great glory, and judge all men. Our Lord corrects this notion in this verse. He declares that Messiah's first advent was not to judge, but to save people from their sins. He says in another place, I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. John chapter 12, verse 47. The Greek word for judging and condemning, it must be remembered, is one and the same. Judgment and the condemnation of the ungodly, our Lord would have us know, are not the work of the first advent, but of the second. The special work of the first advent was to seek and save that which was lost. That world through him saved. This sentence must clearly be interpreted with some qualification. It would contradict other plain texts of Scripture if we took it to mean God sent His Son into the world that all the world might finally be saved through Him and none be lost. In fact, our Lord Himself declares in the very next verse that he that believeth not is condemned already. The meaning of the sentence evidently is that all the world might have a door of salvation opened through Christ, that salvation might be provided for all the world and that so anyone in the world believing on Christ might be saved. In this view it is like the expression of St. John, The Father sent the Son to be the Saviour of the world. 1 John chapter 4, verse 14. The expression, God hath sent, in this verse, ought not to be overlooked. It is very frequently applied, in St. John's Gospel, to our Lord. At least thirty-eight times we find him speaking of himself as him whom God hath sent. It is probably from this expression that St. Paul derives the peculiar name which he gives to our Lord, 
the apostle of our profession hebrews chapter 3 verse 1 the apostle means simply the sent one the readiness of natural man everywhere to regard christ as a judge much more than as a savior is a curious fact the whole system of the roman catholic church is full of the idea people are taught to be afraid of christ and to flee to the virgin mary ignorant protestants are not much better they often regard christ as a kind of judge whose demands they will have to satisfy at the last day much more than as a present personal saviour and friend our lord seems to foresee this error and to correct it in the words of this text calvin observes on this verse whenever our sins press us whenever satan would drive us to despair we ought to hold out this shield that god is unwilling that we should be overwhelmed with everlasting destruction because he has appointed his son to be the salvation of the world verse eighteen he that believeth on him is not condemned in this verse our lord shows nicodemus another heavenly thing he declares the privileges of believing and the peril of not believing in the son of god nicodemus had addressed him as a teacher come from god he would have nicodemus know that he was the high and holy one to believe on whom was life eternal and not to believe on whom was everlasting destruction life or death was before men if they believed and received him as the messiah they would be saved if they believed not they would die in their sins the expression he that believeth deserves special notice it is the third time that our lord speaks of believing on himself and the consequence of believing within four verses it shows the immense importance of faith in the sinner's justification it is that one thing without which eternal life cannot be had it shows the amazing graciousness of the gospel and its admirable suitableness to the wants of human nature a man may have been the worst of sinners but if he will only believe he is at once pardoned last but not least it shows the need of clear distinct views of the nature of saving faith and the importance of keeping it entirely distinct from works of any kind in the matter of justification faith and faith only gives an interest in christ the old sentence of luther's days is perfectly true paradoxical and startling as it may sound the faith which justifies is not the faith which includes charity but the faith which lays hold on christ the expression is not condemned is equivalent to saying he is pardoned acquitted justified cleared from all guilt delivered from the curse of a broken law no longer counted a sinner but reckoned perfectly righteous in the sight of god the presentness of the phrase if one may coin a word should be especially noted it is not said that the believer shall not be condemned at the last day but that he is not condemned the very moment a sinner believes on christ his iniquities are taken away and he is counted righteous all that believe are justified from all things acts chapter thirteen verse thirty nine he believeth not condemned already this sentence means that he who refuses to believe on christ is in a state of condemnation before god even while he lives the curse of a broken law which we all deserve is upon him his sins are upon his head he is reckoned guilty and dead before god and there is but a step between him and hell faith takes all a man's sins away unbelief keeps them all on him through faith a man is made an heir of heaven though kept outside till he dies through unbelief a man is already a subject of the devil though not yet entirely in his power and within hell the moment a man believes all charges are completely wiped away from his name 
so long as a man does not believe his sins cover him over and make him abominable before god and the just wrath of god abides upon him melanchthon remarks that the sentence of god's condemnation which was passed at the beginning thou shalt surely die remains in full force and unrepealed against every one who does not believe on christ no new condemnation is needful every man or woman who does not believe is under the curse and condemned already because not believed name son of god this sentence is justly thought to prove that no sin is so great and so damning and ruinous to the soul as unbelief in one sense it is the only unpardonable sin all other sins may be forgiven however many and great and a man may stand complete before god but if a man will not believe on christ there is no hope for him and if he persists in his unbelief he cannot be saved nothing is so provoking and offensive to god as to refuse the glorious salvation he has provided at so mighty a cost by the death of his only begotten son nothing is so suicidal on the part of man as to turn away from the only remedy which can heal his soul other sins may be scarlet filthy and abominable but not to believe on christ is to bar the door in our own way and to cut off ourselves entirely from heaven it has been truly remarked that it was a greater sin in judas iscariot not to believe on christ for pardon after he had betrayed him than to betray him into the hands of his enemies to betray him no doubt was an act of enormous covetousness wickedness and ingratitude but not to seek him afterwards by faith for pardon was to disbelieve his mercy love and power to save the expression the name as the object of faith is explained in chapter one verse twelve here as frequently it stands for the attributes character and office of the son of god luther quoted by brown remarks henceforward he who is condemned must not complain of adam and his inborn sin the seed of the woman promised by god to bruise the head of the serpent is now come and has atoned for sin and taken away condemnation but he must cry out against himself for not having accepted and believed in the christ the devil's head bruiser and sin strangler if i do not believe the same sin and condemnation must continue verse nineteen this is the condemnation etc in this verse our lord shows nicodemus one more heavenly thing he unfolds to him the true cause of the ruin of those who are lost primarily i think our lord had in view the unbelieving jews of his own day and the real reason of their rejection of himself it was not that there was any want of evidence of his messiahship they had evidence enough and to spare the real reason was that they had no mind to give up their sins secondarily i think our lord had in view the future history of all christians and the true cause of the ruin of all who are not saved in every age it is not because there is any want of light to guide men to heaven it is not because god is wanting in love and unwilling to save the real reason is that men in every age love their own sins and will not come to christ that they may be delivered from them the expression this is the condemnation is evidently very elliptical and the full meaning must be supplied it is probably equivalent to saying this is the cause of the condemnation this is the true account of it the following elliptical expressions are somewhat similar and all are found in st john's first epistle this is the promise this is the love of god this is the victory this is the confidence first john chapter two verse twenty five chapter five verse four and fourteen that light is come into the world it is a question in the sentence whether light means christ himself 
or the light of Christ's gospel. I am inclined to think that our Lord meant to include both ideas. He has come as a light to the world, and the gospel that he has brought with him is, like its author, a strong contrast to the ignorance and wickedness of the earth. Men loved darkness rather than light. The darkness in this sentence means moral darkness and mental darkness, sin, ignorance, superstition, and irreligion. Men cannot come to Christ and receive his gospel without parting with all this, and they love it too well to part with it. Because their deeds were evil. This sentence means that their habits of life were wicked, and any doctrine which necessitated a change of these habits they naturally hated. Throughout this verse I am inclined to think that the past tense loved ought to be taken in a present sense, proleptically, to use a grammarian's phrase, as is frequently the case in the New Testament. See John chapter 15 verse 8 and Romans chapter 8 verse 30. The meaning will then be, men have loved, do love, and always will love darkness, in consequence of the corruption of human nature, as long as the world stands. The sentence then becomes a solemn description of a state of things which was not only to be seen among the Jews while our Lord was on earth, but would be seen everywhere to the end of time. The verse is one which deserves special notice because of the deep mystery it unfolds. It tells us the true reason why men miss heaven and are lost in hell. The origin of evil we are not told. The reason why evil men are lost we are told plainly. There is not a word about any decree of God predestining men to destruction. There is not a syllable about anything deficient or wanting either in God's love or in Christ's atonement. On the contrary, our Lord tells us that light has come into the world, that God has revealed enough of the way of salvation to make men inexcusable if they are not saved. But the real account of the matter is that men have naturally no will or inclination to use the light. They love their own dark and corrupt ways more than the ways which God proposes to them. They therefore reap the fruit of their own ways, and will have at last what they loved. They loved darkness, and they will be cast into outer darkness. They did not like the light, and so they will be shut out from the light eternally. In short, lost souls will be what they willed to be, and they will have what they loved. The words, because their deeds were evil, are very instructive. They teach us that, where men have no love to Christ and his gospel, and will not receive him, their lives and their works will prove at last to have been evil. Their habits of life may not be gross and immoral, they may even be comparatively decent and pure, but the last day will prove them to have been in reality evil. Pride of intellect, or selfishness, or love of man's applause, or dislike to submission of will, or self-righteousness, or some other false principle, will be found to have run through all their conduct. In one way or another, when men refuse to come to Christ, their deeds will always prove to be evil. Rejection of the gospel will always be found to be connected with some moral obliquity. When Christ is refused, we may be quite sure that there is something or other in life or heart which is not right. If a man does not love light, his deeds are evil. Human eyes may not detect the flaw, but the eyes of an all-seeing God do. The whole verse is a deeply humbling one. It shows the folly of all excuses for not receiving the gospel, drawn from intellectual difficulties, from God's predestination, from our own inability to change ourselves, or to see things with the eyes of others. All such excuses are scattered to the winds by this solemn verse. People do not come to Christ, and do continue unconverted, just because they do not wish and do not want to come to Christ. They love something else better than the light. The elect of God prove themselves to be elect by choosing the things which are according to God's mind. 
the wicked prove themselves to be only fit for destruction by choosing loving and following the things which must lead to destruction quesnel says on this verse the greatest misfortune of men does not consist in their being subject to sin corruption and blindness but in their rejecting the deliverer the physician and the light itself verse twenty every one that doeth evil etc etc this verse and the following one form a practical application of all that our lord has been saying to nicodemus and are also a logical consequence of the preceding verse like the preceding verse these two verses apply primarily to the jews in our lord's day and secondarily to every nation to which the light of the gospel comes they are a most remarkable appeal to an inquirer's conscience and supply a most searching test of the sincerity of a man in nicodemus's state of mind the words every one that doeth evil mean every unconverted person every one whose heart is not right and honest in god's sight and whose actions are consequently evil and ungodly every such person hateth the light neither cometh to the light he cannot really love christ and the gospel and will not honestly and with his whole heart seek christ by faith and embrace his gospel until he is renewed the reason of this is that every unconverted person shrinks from having his ungodliness exposed he does not wish his wicked way to be discovered and his utter want of true righteousness and true preparedness for death judgment and eternity to be put to shame he does not like his deeds to be reproved and therefore he shrinks from the light and keeps away from christ the application of this verse must doubtless be made with caution in the case of many unconverted persons its truth is plain as noonday they love sin and hate true religion and get away from the gospel the bible and religious people as much as they possibly can in the case of others its truth is not so apparent at first sight there are many unconverted persons who profess to like the gospel and seem to have no prejudice against it and to hear it with pleasure and yet remain unconverted yet even in the case of these persons the text would be found perfectly true if their hearts were really known with all their seeming love to the light they do not really love it with all their heart there is something or other which they love better and which keeps them back from christ there is something or other which they do not want to give up and do not like to be discovered and reproved man's eyes may not detect it but the eyes of god can the general principle of the text will be found true at last of every hearer of the gospel who dies unconverted he did not thoroughly love the light he did not really want to be changed he did not truly and honestly seek salvation all this was true of the jews in the time of nicodemus and it is no less true of all mankind to whom the gospel comes in the present day right hearts will always come to christ if a man keeps away from the light his heart is wrong he is one that doeth evil there is a curious difference between the greek word translated doeth in this verse and the one translated doeth in the next verse steer and alfred think the difference instructive and meaning they say that the greek word used for doeth evil means the habit of action without fruit or result on the contrary the greek word for doing truth signifies the true doing of good good fruit good that remains verse twenty one he that doeth truth etc this verse it is needless to say is closely connected with the preceding one the preceding verse describes the unconverted man the verse before us describes the converted man the expression he that doeth truth signifies the person whose heart is honest the man who is truly converted however weak and ignorant and whose heart and actions are consequently true and right in the sight of god 
The phrase is frequently found in St. John's writings. See John chapter 18, verse 37, 1 John chapter 1, verses 6 to 8, chapter 2, verse 4, chapter 3, verse 19, 2 John chapter 1, 3 John chapter 3, verse 4. Every such person will always come to Christ and embrace his gospel when it is brought near him. He will have an honest desire that his deeds may be made manifest, and that his real character may be discovered to himself and others. He will have an honest wish to know whether his habits of life are really godly or wrought in God. The principle here laid down is of great importance, and experience shows that the assertion of the text is always confirmed by facts. I believe there was not a truly good man among the Jews in our Lord's day who did not at once receive Christ and welcome Christ's gospel as soon as it was brought before him. Nathaniel was an example. He was a man who did truth under the obscure light of the law of Moses as ministered by scribes and Pharisees. But the moment the Messiah was brought before him, he received him and believed. So also, I believe, when the gospel comes into a church, a parish, or a congregation, it is always gladly received and embraced by any whose hearts are true. To be a truly godly man, and yet to refuse to come to Christ, is an impossibility. He that hears of Christ and does not come to him, and believe on him as God's appointed way of salvation, has something fatally wrong about him. He is not really doing truth. He is not a converted man. Gospel light is a mighty magnet. If there is any one that has true religion within its sphere, it will attract to itself that person. To be truly religious, and not to gravitate towards him who is the great center of all light and truth, is impossible. If a man refuses Christ, he cannot be a godly man. The application of the last two verses to the case of Nicodemus and those Jews who were of the same state of mind as Nicodemus is plain and obvious. Our Lord leaves on the Pharisee's mind a solemn and heart-searching conclusion. Think not that you can stay away from me after hearing this discourse and be saved. If you are a really earnest inquirer after truth, and your heart is honest and sincere, you must go on, you must come to the light and embrace the light, and you will do so, however great your present ignorance. If, on the other hand, you are not really desirous to serve God, you will prove it by keeping away from my gospel, and by not confessing me as the Messiah. It is a pleasant reflection that after events prove that Nicodemus was one who did truth. He used the light our Lord graciously imparted to him. He came forward and spoke for Christ in the council, and at last, when he boldly helped to bury Christ, he made it manifest to all Israel that his deeds were wrought in God. Let it be noted that the two verses which conclude our Lord's address to Nicodemus are a most instructive test of the sincerity and reality of persons who appear anxious inquirers in religion. If they are honest and true, they will go on and come to the full light of Christ. If they are not honest and sincere, but only influenced by temporary excitement, they will probably go back from the light, and will certainly not close with Christ and become his disciples. This should be pressed by ministers and all inquirers. If you are true, you will come to the light. If you are not true, you will go back or stand still. You will not draw near and close with Christ. The test will never be found to fail. Those who wish to see how exceedingly weak the beginnings of grace may be in a heart, and yet be true, as it proved in the case of Nicodemus, will find the matter most skillfully treated in a small work of Perkins, little known, called A Grain of Mustard Seed. A man may have the beginning of regeneration in his heart, and yet be so ignorant as to not know what regeneration is. In concluding these long notes, 
for the length of which the immense importance of the passage must be my apology, I think we should remark that we never hear a word about Nicodemus being baptized. This fact is a strong incidental evidence, to my mind, that the baptism of water was not the subject which our Lord had in view when he told Nicodemus that he must be born of water and the Spirit. One other thing ought to be remarked, in leaving this subject of our Lord's conversation with Nicodemus. That thing is the singular fullness of matter by which the whole of our Lord's address is characterized. Within the space of twenty verses we read of the work of all three persons in the Trinity, the Father's love, the Son's death on the cross, and the Spirit's operation in the new birth of man. The corruption of man's nature, the nature of regeneration, and the efficacy of faith in Christ. The way to escape perishing in hell, the true cause of man's condemnation if he is lost, and the true marks of sincerity in an inquirer. A fuller sermon was never delivered than that which was here preached to Nicodemus in one evening. There is hardly a single important point in divinity which is left untouched. End of section 13